Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3 and verses 9 through 20. Let's pay careful attention now to God's holy word beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking God's help, let's focus our attention upon verses 10 through 12 of what we just read. Paul is expounding the biblical doctrine of human sinfulness, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, from Psalm 53, and from a few other texts as well. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Not one. Not one who is righteous. Not one who does that which is spiritually good. Not one who seeks God in a saving manner. They've all turned aside. And together, they have become unprofitable. We saw this morning that Satan's kingdom is fundamentally unified. It is together. It is unified in its rejection of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we considered something of the paradox of this unity that Satan's kingdom seems to have all kinds of diversity and various elements and sectors of his kingdom, different religions and different political persuasions, different ethnic groups and cultures and, and so on and so forth. And it's marked by disunity, but that disunity is largely the byproduct of what all those groups have in common, and that is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's why they can't get along. They choose the various aspects of 
this world that they want and then they fight against each other because, you know, my ideas are different from his or her ideas. And when you make yourself God, you pretty much set up a great conflict between yourself and pretty much everybody else. And so Satan's kingdom, in a way, eventually you see different lanes on the path to hell, different groups, different departments. But fundamentally, there is unity in this, that they reject God and His authority, and they reject the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw how attractive and even intimidating this unity of Satan's kingdom, this supermajority of ungodliness can be. That it, it woos us with an easy life. We don't have to worry about the threat of being canceled, the threat of being marginalized or slandered or rejected in, in the way that those who follow Christ are rejected. We can go with the flow. That's attractive. There are many on the broad road. We can be one of them. We can be among them. There's safety in numbers, we think. It's attractive. And it, it's intimidating. It, 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 just like the people in Jesus' day who wanted to confess Jesus, they believed in Him in some type of sense, John 12, 42, but they wouldn't confess Him because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. They loved the praises of men. They didn't want to lose their reputation. So it intimidated them into remaining silent. And of course, Jesus says, if you're not going to confess me before men, then I'm not going to confess you before my heavenly Father. Uh, You must confess him with your mouth and believe him with your heart to be saved. So it's intimidating for the natural man and sometimes for the Christian as well. It's exclusive. It's exclusive. It may seem very broad and accommodating at a certain level, but that's just so long as you're headed in the same direction. If you're headed in the same direction, there's an aisle, there's a lane for you on the highway to hell. But if you're heading in the other direction, if you're on the narrow way that's leading to a different destination, if you believe the claims of Christ, the unique claims of Christ as the only way to heaven, as the eternal Son of God, then the, the world has no place for you as it had no place for Him. They hated Him and they hate his people. And so we're excluded from certain things. That's, that's one of the aspects of the, the unity of Satan's kingdom. It's also, as we saw, unprofitable. It causes us as individuals to be ruined, to become useless, to become unprofitable, and to spoil and waste our lives. We gain the whole world. We lose our own soul. But even collectively, we saw the foolishness of thinking that, as Proverbs 11.21 says, that we can join forces hand in hand with the wicked and, and then somehow escape the punishment of God. No, though hand join in hand, though they join forces, the wicked shall not go unpunished. And we could have followed this a bit further. We could have followed this a bit further, but we don't want to steal the thunder of verses 16 and 17. We could have followed this further this morning and considered the fact that that on a large scale, the unconverted world, Satan's kingdom in tandem together is unprofitable for the world. It's unprofitable for society. It's unprofitable for cultures and nations. It brings destruction and misery. 
this bloodlust, this self-deification, verse 15, the shedding of blood, verse 14, the cursing, the bitterness, verse 13, the deception, the, the decay of thought and word and deed, and destruction, verse 16, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Together, that is what Satan's kingdom produces. When a society joins forces and decides we're, we're not going to submit to the yoke of King Jesus, we're not going to submit full-fledged, wholeheartedly to the Word of God, we're going to go our own way, the way that seems right to a man. And my friends, it doesn't only lead to hell for the individual, but in this world, it leads to destruction and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And when we, God willing, consider those verses, we'll think of the many examples of how this is true. How it's been true throughout history. How it's true even in our own day. Together, we can say, they have become unprofitable. And we saw the importance of turning to Christ now. Joining with Christ now. Because Jesus Christ has the name above every name. And at the last day, it won't just be a majority, it'll be unanimous, every knee, every tongue. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, with that said, we proceed to our next point, which will be the focus of our time this evening. And that is this, that God's kingdom is also fundamentally unified. There's a corporate solidarity in the kingdom of darkness and sin and Satan, but there's also a fundamental unity and a corporate solidarity in the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is fundamentally united in its reconciliation to God in Christ. Satan's kingdom is united in its rejection of God in Christ. God's kingdom is united in its reconciliation to God in Jesus Christ. Christ. And we see this in the New Testament. Because if you turn to Christ, you're not just turning to an individual, you're turning to a kingdom. You're turning to a church. You're turning to a collective entity, the covenant people of God Himself. And that covenant people is united in its reconciliation to God through Christ. Ephesians 2. We saw this morning, verses 1-3, through the unity of the kingdom of Satan and of sin, those who walk according to the course of this world, so on and so forth, verse 2. But notice verse 4. And you know, Ephesians is all about union with Christ. Our union and communion with Christ, with God in Christ, and with one another through Christ. That's the main theme of this book. And notice how Paul transitions from the unity of Satan's kingdom to the unity that believers have been brought into and welcomed into by the grace of God. He says, that's how we were, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were together with the world. We were together and we became unprofitable in the world just as the others. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up together and made us sit together. Now this is not primarily describing our unity like the church is experiencing this together. That's not the primary emphasis here. The primary emphasis is that we have been united to Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you were made alive with Christ, together with Christ. So Christ is life. He ever lives to intercede for His people. He rose again from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. Jesus Christ draws us into union with Himself and therefore in union with Him, His life becomes our life. We are inseparably and eternally united to God through Christ and we're made alive together with Christ. Christ was raised and we experience that resurrection power. Christ was raised and we're raised together with Christ. He was raised from the dead in His physical body and we're raised to life spiritually together with Christ. We're raised up together. We're made, we're told in verse 6, to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Together with Christ. Together with each other, yes. And, and that's an emphasis that develops in the book. But fundamentally, if, if you are not together with Christ, you're dead. If you're not together with Christ then you're a man or woman of this earth and of this world. You're not united to Him. You're not exalted, seated with Him in heavenly places. What unites the kingdom of God is its reconciliation to God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ together with Him. And you can see this as it develops in terms of our corporate unity together with one another in Christ. Verse 14 speaking of the reconciliation of the Jews and Gentiles, for He Himself is our peace. He doesn't just make peace. He's not just the Prince of Peace. He is our peace. He actually is the covenant that God has established. He's the embodiment of it. He Himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And this is the most violent separation that could be overcome. If the the Jews and the Gentiles can be reconciled, if Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, can be reconciled to the Gentiles, to the Gentile filth, if Paul can be reconciled in his heart and mind to love these people, and they can be transformed, and they can be united, raised up together with Christ, seated in heavenly places together with Christ, and unified and reconciled together through Christ, then anyone can be reconciled on a horizontal level. doesn't matter who or what your background is, what your lifestyle is. You can, by being united to Christ, you can fit in perfectly well within the life of the church. Now, not perfect till heaven, but You'll fit in with every, because we all have hang-ups and we all have to be patient with each other, but you can be reconciled through Christ and the mutual love and forgiveness and patience of the brethren. It's a beautiful thing. And further on in the chapter, verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I mean, to go from verse 2, where we're dead in sin, we're walking according to the course of this world, uh, we're members of Satan's kingdom, we submit to that prince, the prince of the power of the air, we're children of disobedience, dominated by the lust of the flesh and of the mind, by nature children of wrath just as the others, and now that, that's no longer the case. That is no longer the case. If you're in Christ, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. That's just another way of saying He's our peace. He's the foundation of our unity. There's only one foundation, and that is Christ. There's only one foundation for the unity of the church, and that is Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together. See, you're together with Christ. Now you're together with the other living stones in this building, joined together as the people of God, as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God's kingdom is unified in its reconciliation to God through Christ. In fact, this is a major emphasis even in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Again, I can't stress it enough. This is about you and Jesus. You, dear believer, by faith, as signified in your baptism, you have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ into the likeness of His death and you're united together with Him in His death. And you're united together with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 8, now we died with Christ. We believe that we shall also live with Him. I mean, it goes on and on throughout this chapter. It's you together with Jesus dying to self. You together with Jesus being raised up. You together with Jesus enjoying righteousness and holiness and all the benefits of the covenant of grace in and through Him. Romans 8.17 If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In other words, you're an heir insofar as you're united to Christ, the second Adam who purchased all these benefits of redemption for you. You're an heir with Christ, together with Christ, a joint heir with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So the togetherness of God's kingdom is found in Christ. And just as in a sense there was a paradox in the unity of Satan's kingdom, even so, the unity of God's kingdom is paradoxical in nature. When we look at the church today, we don't see the unity, even if you limit it to 
true Bible-believing evangelical churches, which is really how we should view it, right? But even when we look at the true church as such, we see that in many respects it is marked by disunity. And yet, in many instances, not all instances, but in many instances, the disunity that we see within the evangelical Bible-believing, even in the Reformed church, is a byproduct of its unity. There, there is disunity in the church. Not all the disunity is like this, but much of it, much of the disunity in Bible-believing Protestant churches is a byproduct of the unifying principles that make us Protestant, evangelical, and even Reformed. And what I mean by that is that we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And we believe that we can't compromise the Bible. And so, for instance, some evangelicals are of a Baptistic persuasion. And some evangelicals are of a Reformed and Pado-Baptist perspective. Using Reformed in the, in the confessional sense. You know, Westminster or the three forms of unity. But some, some are Baptistic, some are Pado-Baptist. And why are the Bible-believing, even Calvinistic Baptists, Baptists? Why are they Baptists? Why do they defend Baptist theology? Why are they dogmatic on that point? Because they believe that's what the Bible says and they are uncompromising. They want to do what God says to do. They think that their position is biblical and so they insist upon it, they defend it, they promote it, they teach it. And the Pado-Baptists, the same thing. We believe this is biblical, we teach it, we, we seek to refute the other side and, and make our points from the Scriptures, and we stand on our biblical principles because we believe them to be biblical. And so there's disunity, but in a way it's a byproduct of the unity that we have. I mean, if Baptists said, well, we think the Bible teaches Baptist theology, but you know, we're just going to give that up and become... Presbyterian Pado Baptists, okay, that would be more concerning for them to actually deny what they think the Bible says than if they maintained a robust Baptist position and continued to de- debate and we continued to sharpen each other, pursuant hopefully eventually to some, uh, some unity, some type of conclusion. And that the same could be said vice versa. So there is disunity in the church. Sometimes it's a good disunity in a way. It's a byproduct of our unity. And the Apostle Paul says something similar to this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19. He says, For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now, much of the division in Corinth was bogus. It was self-centered and, you know, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Bad reasons for church disunity. But, Paul says, where there are violations of biblical principles, it's the duty of Christians to, to take a position against that and to distinguish themselves from wrong doctrines and wrong practices and so there's there's a sense in which there will be factions among the people of God when bad things are happening there are going to be some people that say that's bad and other people say it's not and and you're going to have to wrestle with this and so that those who are approved may be recognized so even in the apostolic church there were disagreements and things that had to be 
sorted through. And Paul says at times that can be a byproduct of something that's good. Now, of course, the solution to this type of legitimate disunity in the church is the continued study of the Bible. The more we focus on what we have in common, we can build upon that step by step and one layer upon another, the church can be sanctified in the truth and unified in the truth so that we can recognize our differences and seek to overcome them and work toward a more and more unified, more and more biblical, visible church in any particular nation. But it is, it is paradoxical because you see so much disunity and, and yet it's important for us to realize the fundamental unity that we have. Ephesians 4, I think, is helpful in this respect. Because Ephesians 4 shows us the foundation of our unity, even, so to say, you know, with Baptists and different groups out there that believe the Bible, and we have our differences with them, but, but it shows us the fundamental unity that perhaps at times provokes some controversy, but ultimately the solution is presented here to, to these, what I would call, temporary instances of disunity. If, if you're optimistic like me, you, you know, these things can be worked out. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So, there's one body of Christ. And there's one Spirit of Christ who dwells in those that have been reconciled to God and ministers in the visible church where the true Gospel is preached. There's one body. There's one Spirit. We've been called in one hope of our calling. We're all on the narrow way. Or at least the visible, professing, evangelical church professes to be on that way. And And we trust that many, many people in all of our churches are on that way to that same destination as we heard in the psalm meditation. That same one hope of our calling. Advancing still from strength to strength till we get to Zion and see the face of God. That unifies us in the the broader visible church. One Lord. One Lord. One Savior. Jesus Christ, the foundation. One faith. In other words, it's not those who stand up in the pulpit and preach another Jesus, another Gospel, another Holy Spirit, but the true church is defined by that one most holy faith that has been once delivered to the saints, even the true Gospel of grace. One faith. And there are different denominations that worship that one Lord that are filled with that one Holy Spirit, that have churches that are part of that one body because they preach the Gospel, they administer the sacraments with relative faithfulness, and they engage in church discipline. One body, and and they proclaim that one faith, one baptism. One baptism. Now we can debate whether it's sprinkling, pouring, immersing, but the fact of the matter is that we share the one baptism with those who have one Lord and who proclaim the one faith. We're part of the same church. We have the same mark of God's covenant upon us. 
one God and Father of all. We worship the same triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God and Father who is above all and through all and in you all. Yeah, but what about all those differences and distinctives? Well, Jesus provides for the resolving of that issue. Verse 11, He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we... Now notice, till, until... This is a powerful statement, verse 13. Very optimistic statement. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children. In other words, there's an organic development to the church in this New Covenant period. And you can read church history and you can read historical theology, the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrines of grace, all of these things as Jesus is edifying and sanctifying and unifying His church throughout the ages. And we go from childishness and we begin to mature and grow unto perfection. There's an optimistic outlook here. Not maybe, but until it's coming. It's coming. Increased maturity. Increased edification. The unity of the faith. How? Through the ministry of the Word. Through the ministry of the Word of God in the church of God. God's church will be edified, sanctified, unified. Jesus prayed in John 17 that they may be one as you and I, Father, are one. There's an optimism here. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But notice verse 15. But speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In other words, in the church, in Christ, we come together and we don't become unprofitable. But by the Spirit and through the ministry of the Word, we become profitable. We become fruitful. We grow. We develop. We, we are edified. And we become profitable for the kingdom of God. Profitable for those around us as we mature and grow together in Christ. That's a beautiful encouragement in the midst of just a a very disunified and sectarian age, even in the Reformed world. There's much here to encourage us. In addition, this unity in God's kingdom is attractive. We said that Satan's Unity is attractive in a way, but the unity of God's kingdom is attractive, certainly for the believer. And perhaps even there's something about it that causes the unbeliever to think and to ponder the possibilities. Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together 
in unity. We're told it's something only God can do by pouring out His Spirit on Aaron the high priest as a symbol of God pouring out His Spirit upon Christ and on the body of Christ. But it's good. It's pleasant. We love unity in every aspect of life. Nobody likes contention. Nobody likes fighting. I'm sure it's true even of unconverted husbands that they'd rather be on the corner of the housetop than with a contentious woman. And, and that goes for every aspect of life for all of us. We don't like contention. And in the church, when there is unity, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, how good and how pleasant it is. Can two walk together unless they be agreed what a joy it is when you can walk together with a fellow believer and you're agreed and, and you can speak to one another of the things of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and yet there's that unity, that camaraderie. You, you dwell together in unity. You come together for mutual profit. Iron sharpens iron. It's attractive. It draws in the believer more and more. And uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Now, why do they have love for all the saints? Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the Gospel. Their faith, their love for all the saints, their unity, their fellowship, their partnership. Paul had heard about this reputation of how good and pleasant it was in the church of Colossae. And why was it the case? Because they were anticipating heaven. They were able to put up with each other's hang-ups anticipating when we'll all be made perfect in heaven. They were able to think by faith of heaven to come as a world of love and peace and joy and unity. And they were able to get along with people that they didn't get along with. They were able to agree with people that they didn't agree with. In a sense, you know what I'm saying? Because of the hope that was laid up for them together in heaven. The unity of the church is an attractive thing. It's where Jesus shows His presence in a unique way where two or three are gathered together in His name. He is present. And that's not an empty promise, but that is a real promise. And this is where Jesus manifests His felt presence in the midst of His people. Even the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, just an informal conversation. They were walking together. They were agreed. They had some problems. But Jesus showed up and cleared it up and how good and pleasant it was for them to reflect later upon how their hearts burned. Ephesians 3 talks about Paul's prayer for the Ephesians to be revived, to to be strengthened with might in the inner man, to be filled with all the fullness of God. But notice at the heart of that prayer is verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all all the saints, together with the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Together. In tandem. One with another. There's something attractive about experiencing God's love in that way. So attractive that Moses, as a mark of the Spirit's work in his life, 
turned his back on all the treasures and pleasures of Egypt. And he, he was willing to give up everything to suffer reproach with the people of God whom he loved. He was drawn to them. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he came of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's not going to associate with the world. He's not going to join together for the unprofitable enterprise of Egyptian idolatry. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Indeed, it says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for He looked to the reward. It's, it's something that attracts the heart of every true Christian. And in some sense, it's intimidating. It should be intimidating. There is a weightiness of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is a weightiness when we think of that unity that will be declared at the last day, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. There's a weightiness when we think of the great cloud of witnesses that went before us by faith, triumphing and professing that same faith that's declared to us today through the ministry of the Gospel. When we think of that one Lord, one faith, one baptism, it ought to send shivers up our spine at the very thought of going outside the true visible church of Jesus Christ. There is a weightiness, a significance, a gravity to the unity of the church. Hebrews 13.7 Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the Word of God to you. Think of the truth of the Gospel, the old paths where the good way is, that one true Gospel of grace, not some idiosyncratic list of cultic distinctives, but, but the one true biblical Gospel, biblical message, biblical Christianity, the whole counsel of God's own Word. Remember what's been declared. Remember those that spoke that Word of God to you whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And my friends, the true Christian would not dare step away from the Lord's side and from the Lord's church. And that's not to deify the church or say that the church... Uh, has that same authority as Christ in heaven. But what I'm saying is, God has a church in the world. Wherever it is, sometimes it's more or less visible, but we ought never to step away from the true church of Jesus Christ. That should be intimidating. When we hear the, the pattern of sound words expounded from the Word of God, we, it, it ought to just... Fill us with fear and trembling to ever step away from that pattern of sound words. It's also an exclusive unity. This unity of God's kingdom is exclusive. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James 4, you become a friend of the world. You're an enemy of God. I mean, it's one or the other. We saw it with Satan's kingdom. It's one or the other. If you don't 
prize and cherish Jesus as preeminent in all things and seek Him first and love Him even beyond your family members and you're not willing to forsake all if necessary and and cling to Him, He says you're not worthy to be called My disciple. God is a jealous God. Jesus is a jealous lover and husband of His bride, the church. And, And this unity of the Spirit and bond of peace is exclusive it's exclusive and therefore if we're to come to Christ we must come out from among them and be separate from the world if we're to come to Christ and stand with Christ then 1 Corinthians 10 says you know you're eating of the one loaf you're the one body of Christ you're you're drinking the wine the cup that's the fellowship of Christ's blood. You're unified in the church of Jesus Christ, one with another. You're at the table of the Lord, but you cannot eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't do it. You can't serve two masters. You can't bridge the gap between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. Choose this day whom you will serve. And he tells them in Ephesians 5.11, Paul says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Have no fellowship with the unprofitable works of the kingdom of darkness, in other words. What fellowship has light with darkness? Righteousness with unrighteousness. Christ with Belial. Come out from among them. And you see an example of this principle in Ezra 4, 1-3, where God's people are seeking to rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, which was in shambles from the captivity in Babylon, and along come their neighbors that were not Jews, that were not worshipers of Jehovah. They had a mixed mongrel religion that was unbiblical, and they came to the leaders and they said, we'll build with you. We'll join with you in building this temple, in rebuilding this society. We will build with you. And the people rightly said, no way, we're not going to do it. We will build the house of God. We're not going to join forces with the kingdom of darkness. As Paul says of those who proclaim a false gospel, who engender bondage by their gospel of works, he says, cast out the bondwoman and her children. Galatians 4. This unity is exclusive. And this unity is profitable. The unity of the kingdom of God in Christ is profitable. And you see it throughout this epistle to the Romans. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. Look at how Paul views his unity with these believers in the church at Rome. He's never met these people. He's never laid eyes on them or had a conversation with them. But chapter 1, verse 12, he's explaining why he longs to see them. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. See the profit, the fruitfulness, the benefit of true spiritual Christian unity in the body of Christ. He says that I, as the apostle, an inspired apostle, he wrote the epistle to the Romans, but he's saying, I can't wait to come to you Not just verse 11 to impart something to you, but so that I may be encouraged, strengthened in my heart, comforted in my soul, together with you. 
there's a mutual faith and a mutual edification. It's not some kind of kumbaya where we just ignore the truth of the Bible, but he's saying in our common faith in the common truths of the Bible, we have that camaraderie and we're encouraged in the midst of a heckling and violent, angry world that hates Christ. What a comfort to sit down with fellow believers and converse about Christ and and His truth and the common frailties and struggles of the Christian life and have real spiritual conversations together with them and have mutual faith and encouragement. It's profitable for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, Paul says, let us consider one another. And of course, you could go throughout the New Testament, the many verses that speak of one another how we ought to relate to each other in the body of Christ, that's a study for you to engage in. Just get a concordance, start looking up those verses. It's a practical blueprint for Christian fellowship and mutual edification. But here he says, let us consider one another. In other words, one considers another. Each person considering other people. And he says, in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. It's one thing if we're not mindful of others and considering others and looking for ways to encourage each other. But I mean, if we're not even showing up, I mean, we're not, you know, we're not even accomplishing anything. But it's not enough to just show up. We need to show up and consider one another how we can stir up other brothers and sisters in love and good works. So that we can be together, not unprofitable, but profitable. Together, experience mutual edification. He says, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. How do we stir up people to good works around us? Well, it involves our speech. It involves our conversation. Sometimes it involves us exhorting one another. Sometimes it involves a word of comfort. Sometimes it involves just listening to someone and not saying anything. I mean, there's so many applications. But the point is, we need to be thinking strategically and sensitively about who's around us and who we might be able to help. Some people we might be able to help more than others. Some people might need help more than others. And some people might uh, be receiving help already, but there's somebody who's not receiving any help, and we see them, and we, we need to consider that and go to that person and find ways to stir them up to love and good works. So, if we do that, it's profitable. If we don't, it's not. So, we need to recognize that this, this profitability of Christian unity really comes with an exhortation. Proverbs talks about iron sharpening iron. As iron sharpens iron, so one Christian will sharpen another Christian. And that's an opportunity for us. But we got to get in the conversation. We need to find the people. And it can't just be the same people nonstop, right? In the body of Christ, you can't just hang around your little clique and not interface with other people of other ages and demographics. You need to mix and mingle and look for opportunities where somebody is not being ministered Philippians 1.27, another verse that's just helpful 
to meditate on. I'm going to bring some more specific application in a moment, but just just to reinforce that this is this is such a priority for Paul. Verse 27 of Philippians 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them a proof of perdition but to you of salvation and that from God. So you see, by banding together we can overcome fear and anxiety. We can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus prays that we would come together, that we would be one as He and the Father are one, John 17, so that the world may know that You have sent Me, Jesus says, so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. How are they going to know? Because of the unity and the mutual edification and the loving one another that takes place in the church. It's profitable not just for us individually or for our congregation or denomination, but it is profitable for the world at large. In fact, as the church grows and increases in unity and faithfulness to the Word of God, we're told in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And notice the fruit of it midway through verse 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. That the way of peace, this kingdom of Satan doesn't understand. And the more it takes hold in the world, the more destruction and misery is in their way. But when the kingdom of Christ grows and grows in strength and power and influence and faithfulness and unity, peace, the increase of His government and of peace shall be no end. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Who would not want to live in a world like that? Together the church is profitable individually, in your family, in our churches and congregations and denominations, but even throughout the nations of the world on a grand scale. But in application to ourselves, we must consider this in closing. When we come together, is it to be profitable or unprofitable? 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that in various respects, when the Corinthians came together, it was not for the better, but for the worse. They weren't coming together to stir each other up to love and good works. They weren't coming together in a biblically faithful and unifying way. It was not profitable, but unprofitable. It wasn't for the better, it was for the worse. And my friends, we need to examine ourselves. There are many examples in the Scriptures as as we've already looked at of what it looks like to fellowship in the Lord in a way that is edifying and that makes godliness contagious and encouragement contagious. Uh, The Lord loves true Christian 
fellowship. He loves how profitable it is. Malachi 3.16, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on His name. They feared the Lord. They spoke to one another. They meditated on His name. My friends, what are we thinking about and speaking about in our Christian fellowship, especially when we gather on the Lord's Day and then we disperse and we have conversations with other people in the church? Are we speaking in a way that, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers? Is that how we're speaking? Are we dwelling on the things that are noble and good and valuable and edifying? Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Are we thinking and speaking about the matchless love of Christ? Ephesians 3. And I think there are two main extremes or two main pitfalls when it comes to this idea of coming together in a profitable way. Two main ways that we struggle. The first is too much small talk. Too much small talk. Too much small talk with other believers that doesn't have a spiritual trajectory. It's not going anywhere. It's not wrong to have small talk, but, but small talk needs to eventually get to big talk. right? There needs to be something of spiritual substance, of faith and encouragement. There must be some spiritual trajectory for something that's going to be eternally beneficial or edifying to others. And so, Let's think about it. It's not easy to have those conversations. We need to consider one another. Think about who you're talking to. Think about it the night before, Saturday night. Who's going to be at church? What are some things that we could talk about? What are some things that I could say as a conversation starter that's not uh, just totally canned and fake? So too much small talk. That's something we do have to be worried about. But secondly, the other pitfall is not enough small talk. Not enough small talk. If our conversations with other believers on the Lord's Day seem to be a steady stream, almost nonstop, of controversy, polemics, debating this, debating that, debating against the sermon, debating in favor of the sermon, against this, that, or the other view, editorializing everything under the sun, and constantly talking about the latest controversies in the Christian world, in the Reformed world. And it's almost like we just walk up to people and start blurting out controversial things. We need more small talk, right? We need more small talk. We need less controversy, less polemics. I'm not saying it's not Sabbath-oriented to speak about polemics. I mean, it's a great time to talk about issues that God has providentially brought our way that we're wrestling with. But if we're just sort of inserting these things into conversations non-stop with people, this is not edifying. This is not helpful. And, and in the Reformed world, we can be like the Athenians in Acts 17, verse 21, if we're not careful. We're told that the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. Some new doctrine, some new controversy, some new ethical conundrum that we have to spend the next five hours debating. My friends, that is not edifying. This was a problem in the early church. 
Not surprising, it appears in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 1.4, he says, Don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. If what we're saying and doing is causing disputes, that's a problem. 1 Timothy 6.4, he is proud knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. 2 Timothy 2.14 Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. To the ruin of the hearers. Not just your brothers and sisters in the church. It can have a negative effect on their spiritual life. But imagine an unbeliever comes into the church and all they hear, if they just sit or stand near a certain conversation, all they hear nonstop is uh, refuting this group and that group and this view and that view, and it, it never ends. We need to think about what is necessary for edification, what is going to help others. It may help to talk about a controversy. Maybe they're dealing with some ethical issue by all means. I'm not saying don't explain the truth to them on this or that issue, but I'm saying there's got to be a balanced diet here. There needs to be some diversity. Romans 14, 19, I'll close with this. Therefore, let us pursue the things which, which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Therefore, let us pursue, and I preach this to myself too, this is, this is an issue. I'm harping on it because this is something I've had to deal with, and maybe, I, maybe, maybe if we struggle with this, it's because I've set a bad example. I'm open to that. But let's recognize, therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We pray that there would be in this place the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, not as a stagnant or static reality, but that we would ever be reforming and responding to Your Word and growing and maturing into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Help us to speak the truth in love, to do that which is appropriate and beneficial for our brethren for those who attend this church and who are seeking You out, who are unconverted under the preaching of the Word, help us to to be all things to all men that we may win some, that we may promote true biblical righteousness and faithfulness in a way that unifies and edifies the body of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.